0: welcome to on the wing podcast with pheasants forever and quail forever this episode is all about the pheasant capital of the country that's right it's the state of the state for south dakota hunting season is almost here and uh, there's more than a hundred thousand people will be going to south dakota to chase roosters this year so we uh, visit with Matt Morlock and Erica Yost talking about the habitat conditions in the state, the bird numbers, and they give us some uh, pheasant hunting tips for now and later season or late season pheasant hunting in the state of South Dakota. It's all wrapped around an impromptu visit to the Terry Redland Art Museum in Watertown. It's a very fun episode. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you're one of those people that are heading to South Dakota in the coming weeks, months. Uh, It is the place to go to chase roosters. Here you go. Give it a listen. On the Wing podcast, coming at you from the pheasant capital, South Dakota. All right. Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast podcast. Coming at you from Watertown, South Dakota. And we had a little bit of a curveball this morning. We were planning to do this podcast from a uh, Pheasants Forever chapter habitat project that's part of a game production area, a piece of property that's open to public hunting to you, the listener, out here in South Dakota come October 20th, which is the opening day in South Dakota. But what used to be... 24 hours ago, summer, has changed dramatically. It is now 42 degrees outside. It is gray, it is spitting rain, and it is blowing a gale. It's 20 mile an hour winds out there, which we thought the sound quality wouldn't work too well. So uh, on my way from Minnesota this morning, and um, I got up dark and early at um, 4.30 a.m., Started the the drive west, which was spectacular because I was heading to a state I love, and that's a state of South Dakota. Um, I, halfway through, I thought, you know, this isn't going to work so well. So I called Matt Morlock, our um, state coordinator, the head head honcho in South Dakota for Pheasants Forever. It's like we need to we need to ad lib a little bit, and thought occurred to me, you know what's in Watertown? It's the Terry Redlin Art Center. What better place to record a Pheasants Forever podcast than the Godfather of Wildlife Art, Terry Redlin? <laughs> so we just uh, showed up on the doorstep this morning, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we we uh, literally, honest, honest to goodness, we we showed up on the doorstep, and said, uh, Julie. You're the executive director. Would you mind if we took over your museum for a day? (laughs) And, you you know, in in quintessential South Dakota hospitality, Julie Ranum, am I pronouncing that correctly? You are. uh, Said, absolutely, come on in. Let me give you a private tour of the Redland Arts Center. And uh, you you can absolutely record a pheasants for how fitting of a place to have... Uh, a, a conversation about conservation then at the terry redland art center so before anything Thank you so much for hosting the show today, Julie, um, Executive Director of the Redland Art Center. Welcome to Pheasants Forever's On the Wing podcast.
1: Thank you so much. We're delighted you're here. I guess we're grateful for the weather forecast today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's worked out very well for the Terry Redland Art Center, it's given me a great opportunity to have all of you folks here and uh, show you around a little bit. So
0: welcome. Well, th- and you know, it was. Um, it's interesting that all three of us have been through here. A number of times so all three of us meaning uh, we have Matt Morlach who is well go ahead and tell your, your title Matt
2: I'm the acting director for the South Dakota Regional Office of Pheasants Forever, and actually grew up in Watertown. Oh, so I gave you so. a new
0: title already.
2: Well, that one's too. I Oh, state I have coordinator? Multi, I, got, I have about five titles out there, it seems Chief, like. Chief Brain Wizard? No, that's no, not one that's of not them. them. <laughs> Definitely not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: and then we also have Erica Yost, the, most, uh, uh, the, the newest member of the South Dakota team, although you've been on with Pheasants Forever for a number of years.
3: Yep, just over five years.
0: So not a rookie by any sense. Well... New to South Dakota by two, two months. Two months, yeah, just two months. Here. So, so we 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 our intent was, hey, let's do a state of the pheasant capital, right? State of the state, and um, you know the 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 weather blew us into the Redland Art Center, which couldn't be more fitting. So let's start the conversation there. Um, all three of us have never been here before, which is. It's somewhat embarrassing <laughs> looking at Julia. <laughs> but uh, I can tell you that anybody listening to the podcast, the 145,000 members of Pheasants Forever and the 300 employees especially need to make their way to Watertown because this is an absolutely spectacular place. It's three floors. Maybe give us, uh, Julia, sure. an overview of um, how spectacular
1: place this is well thank you very much i it is a beautiful gift from terry redland and his family it is a structure that's a bit unexpected a on the prairies of South Dakota, um, three stories surrounded by 24 solid granite columns. And it kind of rises up off the landscape. And it's filled with 165 of Terry Redland's original oil paintings. Wow. So when you step in here, you truly are stepping into the world and the life and the memories of Terry Redland. And I think the magic of Terry Redland is that's the memories so many of us share. And
0: he didn't start painting until he was forty one? Forty years old. Nineteen
1: seventy-seven. He had been in the world of commercial art and illustration for the first half of his career and he didn't launch his career as a wildlife artist until the age of forty.
0: And he passed away two years ago, right? Twenty sixteen. Yes. So so twenty eight years? 30, was,
1: 30 years. Thirty well,
0: years he was a, a painter. And how many right. how many total paintings did he do in that time span
1: uh, right around 210 pieces because <laughs> oh, that's what you, you,
0: you do you look at this this uh, beautiful art center and you're like holy cow this guy was prolific
1: he was very prolific but I, I think if he were here chatting with us today he would tell you that was because of his training as a commercial artist he was trained to perform and and to produce and so even when he went on his own as an independent artist he got up every day and went to the easel and went to work, he was not an artist that waited for inspiration. He was trained to to perform.
0: Did he ever talk about writer's block for from artist's perspective?
1: Not necessarily um, from. A large scale. I will tell you that there were some paintings that came together more easily sure. and more quickly than others, and some that he had to set aside and and didn't know if they'd ever come to fruition or not. Um, but he never worked on just one painting from start to finish. He always worked in groups of paintings, sometimes six, eight, twelve different paintings at different stages of completion throughout the um, course of his um, year. Hmm. And he did that because every time he'd set a painting aside and come back to it, he'd see it with what he said were fresh eyes. And he'd know exactly what it needed next. Um, So yes, very, very prolific. And in kind of the peak years of Terry Redland's career, he would actually paint about six months out of the year. And he would sign prints hmm. about six months out of the year if you can imagine doing nothing but signing your name to prints six months out of the year um, that was a big part of his job because as you as you know his prints were sold nationwide and right. um, and during his peak years there were hundreds of thousands of prints out there.
0: So the fact that this conversation came together less than an hour ago, I didn't actually prep any Terry Redland background, but I feel 100% confident saying that from an artist's perspective, nobody generated or has ever generated more money for wildlife habitat conservation through Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, Rough Grouses, nobody is probably even close to Terry Redland's um, ability to raise money for habitat, that's just it, you know what what his artwork has done on the landscape in terms of wildlife habitat and wetlands habitat right. is amazing. I'd love to know that dollar figure. You know. I, I didn't prep it, man. No. I'm sorry. I that, <laughs> and I don't know what's out there. I just yeah. I, I, as I was walking around, I was thinking that. I was yeah, like,
2: it's how much money's been raised for conservation. The work we do. My best, Austin Powers, one billion dollars. <laughs>
1: The yeah. estimate, the, the last estimate I heard, and it was years ago, was over $40 million um, wow. for conservation efforts. And wow. um, again, it was a, a partnership that was really near and dear to Terry's heart. And, uh, and so I think that's why it worked so well.
0: Well, speaking of dollars and cents, just for a moment, it's free to come into this art center, yes, right? Yes, it is.
1: It is free. And we're open year-round, seven days a week closed just major holidays and that's all part of Terry Redland's gift.
0: It's unbelievable. I mean cuz you you do you like you say you're driving across the prairie and come into Watertown and like, "Huh, what's that?" Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's um it's breathtaking how beautiful this is from the outside. And then you get inside and you think, "Holy mackerel cuz you take like you say you take a walk from the years where he grew up in Watertown which I don't know if we mentioned that already. He was born here, right? Which right. is part of the reason it's here. Um, there's, you know, images of pheasants, yes. you know, that kind of. Uh, w- dominated his early years. And then, obviously, Waterfall. Right. And then you mentioned he had a family cabin in Wisconsin. Yes. So it kind of took me back towards my Uper roots, mm-hmm. right, where you see the uh, rough grouse and in the, in the woodcock and the log cabins. And um, you can see some of the, the Ducks Unlimited Prince of the Year and the Pheasants Forever Prince of the Year. And, um, you know, some of the, the very Christmassy-feeling ones, right? Mm-hmm. They, it, like Boy, it's you. You want to put yourself in those pictures, those paintings on December twenty fourth, and it'd be perfect.
1: Right, right. And you
0: know, to set the stage scene even more, <laughs> you know, we're we're sitting in front of a fireplace, <laughs> right, with right? Terry Redlin uh, paintings, quilts, a uh, bookshelf, canoe, or coffee table. Um, right now, as we talk, it's. It, it, there's Christmas Day. I mean, I feel like I'm in Christmas right now. It's <laughs> it's wonderful.
1: Well, we are in the the Christmas cabin, and it's uh, a cabin showroom modeled after the cabins in Terry Redland's paintings. And it was intended to do exactly what you've just described, and that is give folks an, a sense of feeling what it would feel like to step into a Terry Redland painting. Yeah.
0: Well, you succeeded. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so... There's three levels here. Um, Tell us a little bit about how the different, um, the museum's broken out in structure.
1: Absolutely. And first, I just want to make sure that um, all of the listeners know that this is Terry Redland's gift back to his hometown, because when he was a young man, 15 years old, he was a passenger on a motorcycle that was hit by a drunken driver, and he lost a leg. Mm. And at that time, the state of South Dakota had a scholarship program for students with disabilities. Terry was awarded about $1,500 to use to continue his education through that program. Without that, his family never would have been able to afford to send him to school, and so that was an incredible gift for Terry. He decided to pursue his interest in art because of his new disability. He thought that would be less physically challenging, and he went on to art school, to Minnesota, to the St. Paul School of Associated Arts, earned a degree as a graphic artist and commercial designer, and went to work for the first 20 years of his career in the world of commercial art. He didn't launch his career as a wildlife artist until he was 40 years old, and um, after a few years in the business, his son, Charles, convinced him to stop selling his original oil painting so that one day a building could be built. Hmm. And after much conversation, the family decided that the place, the art center, needed to come home to Watertown. It was Terry's opportunity to repay that gift of the wow. scholarship. So this is his thank you gift.
0: So a $1,500 scholarship turned into what would have been multiple millions right. for his kids. And his kids said, no. Right. We want this for the state. Right. Here you go.
1: So truly, when I say it's a gift from the entire family, it is. Because uh, they certainly didn't have to give up that. Wow,
0: that's spectacular. And it's free admission.
1: And it's free admission. Terry wanted it to be free because he wanted it to be available to everybody, and he wanted folks to come back as often as they wanted to, and so that is truly what's happened. About 50% of the folks we welcome at the front doors of the Art Center have been here before, hmm. and about 50% are first-timers, and so...
0: We fall on the 50% right. first-timers. I know,
1: but I'm thrilled, because <laughs> I I have no doubt you'll be back. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. You're so, right. Um, but you asked me about the gallery. There are three floors of art. The main floor features more of the early wildlife art that launched Terry's career. When you uh, work your way up to the second-floor gallery, you'll see a a transition of style featuring more of his Americana paintings. So his most patriotic paintings are all gathered together in what Terry called his America Room. Hmm. And then beyond that on the second floor are many of the paintings that you've described, beautiful Christmas scenes, and a lot of his childhood memories of growing up in South Dakota. On the lower level of the gallery, which is where we are now, uh, you find the paintings that he finished his career with before retiring in 2007, and a few of those early paintings. So it's a great floor to compare and contrast Mm. the early work to the work he finished with.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's all marvelous. So... I gotta ask you, what's what's your absolute favorite painting, right? Because you said there's a hundred and how many here? One
1: hundred and sixty-five of his original oil paintings here, and, and that's w- a really hard question, Bob. <laughs> well, it felt like
0: you you maybe have given the overview a time or two. Yes,
2: <laughs> I have. So you wanted to just kind of
0: I was I was trying to throw you something yeah. a little bit off the okay.
1: cuff. Okay. Well, and you know I've been here for twenty-two years, wow. so my Favorite. And you're a Watertown
0: native? No, I'm no.
1: originally from Minnesota. Um and so I started here at the Redland Arts Center before it ever even opened to the general public and was blessed to have an opportunity to work directly with Terry and the Redland family to open the doors. Right. But um my favorites have kind of changed over the years, but um since we're kind of coming into this time of the year, my favorite Christmas mm-hmm. painting is called Sweet Memories and it is a wonderful painting capturing children on a hay wagon who have stopped at the candy store and they're going in to buy marshmallows <laughs> and they're coming back out with little buckets of marshmallows getting back on the hay wagon and they're going to toast marshmallows at the bonfire and so that to me is just like a perfect yeah. Christmas event and so I love that painting
0: So when you uh, You know, before he passed, did you have conversations about, you know, what was going on in that scene with Terry? Yes.
1: And his memory of that, um, he captured the candy store, which in his painting is called the Palace of Sweets. And that was actually a candy store in Watertown when Terry was a young, young boy. It didn't look like it looks in the painting, but the name was the same. And he told me that he used to love to go into the Palace of Sweets because his mom would let him get, a peppermint stick or a candy cane, mm-hmm. and one year he got a jumbo candy cane, and he <laughs> ate the whole thing, and he never ate a candy cane after that. <laughs> 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 and um, but every painting is yeah. filled with those type of memories, you know, and and that's the magic I think of Terry Redlin. And,
0: and I also have always loved, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, the way he uses light yeah right that that one you know there's a grouse painting rough grouse painting upstairs where you know light just cutting through two trees yeah and we've all you know as as grouse hunters or right. in the woods you know you, you know you stop in that moment yeah. and to capture that moment moment and paint yeah. you know is just breathtaking it's pretty
1: magical you know he um he re- Terry referred to his style as romantic realism. Hmm. And I think that's a perfect definition, don't you? Mm, absolutely. Because it is, it's what we've experienced. It's, it's real, it's almost three-dimensional when you look at it on the canvas, right? right? And that light is just amazing. How did he possibly do that and capture that light source the way he did? Um, but he, he captured everything we want to see From that scene, and left out all the stuff we don't want. Right,
0: romantic realism is—it's the best pieces, right, of our entire lives. Exactly captured in moments. Yes, he did. All right. So the obvious next question is: We we asked you about your favorite overall painting right? Yes. A pheasant or, or a quail painting that would be relevant to our Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever members. What's your favorite, uh, one of our game bird species? Okay. So
1: I do have a few actually. And, but, um, and they're not all here as originals, but one that is, is called Evening Harvest. Mm. Um, and that is just one of his classic farm scenes and the tractor has the lights on and literally they look like they're on in the Mm. painting and the pheasant in its gorgeous full color is right the rooster is right there in the foreground of the painting and it is just magnificent and that original is on the main floor of the art center available for everybody to come and see um there are a couple of others that i love i love sharing the bounty and that's the corn crib with the deer and the pheasants both feeding at the corn crib i love that i just love I love the message of it. I sure. love, I just, and the whole scene is just beautiful. And the other one that's, um, I don't know why, just kind of speaks to me is called Country Road. And maybe because we've all been down those country roads mm-hmm. and have experienced, especially in across the prairie, um, the landscape he captures so beautifully. And then these m- magnificent birds. Um, and some of the colors that he is able to capture um, in his art are so like we talked so real yeah and i think that's what's amazing
0: is there one uh, particular piece of art that like is the mona lisa of terry Redlin, like that that outsells everything else there are two
1: okay there are two that have been neck and neck hmm. from uh, the very beginning um evening with friends and best friends. Evening with friends is a winter scene, white-tailed deer in the foreground, log cabin sitting down in the nestled okay. um, Oh, yeah, nestled I know exactly in. which one you're talking about. The car with the headlights yep. on. Yep. Okay, you, you see it, Yo, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, um, evening with friends. And the other best friends is the man and his dog sitting on the hilltop oh, overlooking yes. yep. the landscape. And there's geese, some, yes, right? the geese. The geese, yeah. yep. For and me, that,
2: it's the... Scouting, he's out scouting with his dog, yes. getting yeah. ready to go hunting for the next morning. That it, it doesn't, ca- it, it,
0: you know, when it's when it's like um, uh, when a piece of art jumps to your mind after like two sentences of description, right? Yep. Yep. And you start putting into words like what's happening, right? But you like you're describing like, oh yeah, I I know exactly which one you're talking <laughs> about. That you know you've succeeded as an artist, right? Right. It's like a songwriter where you hear that song, like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. I. That was the first girl I ever kissed. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough Uh for for showing us the hospitality. Uh, The the last question. So you've been here how many years? 22. 22. And there's got, I'm assuming 22, and you've got your favorites, but there's probably all like that little, little hidden thing, that gem, that not everybody looks for. So when, when our 145,000 members visit Watertown <laughs> and come check out the, the Terry Redlin Art Center, what corner is the gem hidden at that they should, you know, make sure that they stop and look for?
1: That's an excellent question. Um, I'll give you two to okay. search for. Uh, first of all, there's a painting in the gallery called Coming Home. And that was the transition piece. That was the transition from focus only on wildlife and its natural habitat to incorporating people into the paintings. And that was a real turning point for mm-hmm. Terry Redland's career. And that painting is um, really instrumental. It was so instrumental in his life and career, and it's important in the gallery too because it just sort of sets the tone for the next uh, decade of art. And the other um, little gem is our early art room. And it's filled with pieces of art as earl- that Terry created as early as age six, mm. and it's on display not because Terry was overly proud of himself for those early pieces, but he wanted to inspire. All other artists and his mantra or his motto was if your work is all yours never copied and it's the best you can do at the time it's good enough keep working and you'll keep getting better and that room is an example of that and I think that's kind of a special little gem that might not what might be missed yeah so and i hope everybody comes to say hello to me because i want to meet everybody
0: (laughs) (laughs) well uh, there'll be a whole bunch of people coming roughly october 19th (laughs) yes because that is the start of the hundredth pheasant hunting season for the state of south dakota so come a day early Swing through Watertown. Come visit Julie. Please. Say hi. Yes. Because she's the nicest person in the world. <laughs> Thank you. Swing by uh, the the Redland Art Center. It's on the south side of the highway as you come into um, Watertown. Right. And um, it, it, it's free. It's and free. And it is it is the place to go if you love wildlife, love art, and want to pay some respects to a guy that generated millions of dollars for wildlife habitat and many of us I'd say out of that hundred and forty five thousand Pheasants Forever members out there, it's gotta be ninety nine percent of us have a Terry Redland painting, quilt, pillow, something in our home. So this is um this is a, a very wonderful happenstance that we showed up on your doorstep and can't thank you enough, Julie. Thank you.
1: Thank you and please know you are welcome anytime any time of year, any kind of weather, and you're always welcome here. We love having you, so thank you for being here.
0: Thank you very thank much. Uh, that was Julie Ranham, the, the Executive Director for the Redland Art Center, who has allowed us to record this podcast uh, at the art Center today, and we're going to transition our conversation to South Dakota's 100th pheasant hunting season and... Um, discussion about habitat so I'm turning attention to Matt Morlock and Erica Yost and uh, let, let's start with Matt you've been here oh coming up on 16 years yep. in in podcast time give us your life story
2: Oh, jeez. <laughs> so it was, it was a baptism by fire. Yeah, my first day on the job. At well, you don't f- have to start at your baptism. Yeah. Okay. I won't go that far, back. <laughs> right. My pheasant's forever <laughs> baptism was the first pheasant fest. That was my first day on the job. Really? So 2003. So we—so
0: my first day was four days before the first pheasant yeah. fest in 03. So I got you by four days. You
2: four days. Dang. Wow. I was going to say I had you, but. How do you like that? That doesn't happen very often in the company anymore. No? I was sitting there the other day thinking about it. There's not very many staff that've been around as long as I've been blessed to be here. It just—it was like, oh, I'm getting old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, seasoned. 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 Okay, we'll go seasoned.
2: So yeah, I started out, you know, 2003 or 2004, you know, as a Farm Bill biologist, and I was lucky enough to get on with it. I was one of the second, as the second or third one hired in the company on the first day of that program. Um, since then, you know, that program's grown to 135 Farm Bill biologists around the country. Um, it, it, it's probably the most rewarding job I've ever had is you go out and you make habitat every day with landowners, you're working with those landowners to make sure that habitat works for their farming operation. Cause you're usually dealing with a farmer that's an active farmer. It's not, you know, somebody that's just bought it for hunting or something like that. You're working with those farmers that are out there making a living off it. So you get to engage with those folks. Um, and you're just building habitat nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, did that for 10 years. Um, then took a little detour and became a field team data analyst which I'm a biologist, you know. Why did I go there? But it, it was it was a job that popped up. And Do like, you want to lay
0: down on the couch that you're sitting on right now? We could hash yeah. this out for you. I might need that. No, <laughs> no, it <way laughs> Why did I go there? I don't know. I don't know, but
2: it's it works. But no, it was it, it was a job that allowed me to transition more into that big picture stuff. Yeah, um, and as a national. Job, and so it was, I got, me, got me exposed to the company across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a very, you know, I'm glad I made that step. Um, and then from there, I came back into South Dakota as the assistant director, um, working under Dave Nompson, who was the director, um, and started overseeing our partnerships and our staff in the state, um, and work on growing programs and all that stuff, and give us more of a presence on the landscape here in South Dakota. Um, Since then, Dave got called back to Washington, D.C. He's our vice president of government affairs also. Um, And so I've been in the acting role as the director now for the last couple of years.
0: So a a unique thing about South Dakota for Pheasants Forever is, you know, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, everything is headquartered in St. Paul, Minnesota, in a nondescript industrial park in the middle of White Bear Lake, (laughs) (laughs) which is good, right? Because that means the dollars are going where they're supposed to, but the... um, the anomaly of that is South Dakota in, oh, probably 2014-ish, somewhere in that time frame, maybe a little later. So we opened uh, regional yeah, headquarters for, um, um, it's the pheasant capital of the country, right? Yeah. South Dakota, and, and part of the in the creation of the headquarter or the regional office here is to put the flag on the map and say, you know, we've lost a lot of habitat in the state of South Dakota over the last few years, you know, not on our watch. We're gonna, we're gonna make sure that this state remains, um, you know, the the pheasant capital of the world, yep. and um, um, that's what uh, you head up as the acting director of that regional office. Right. Um, one thing you didn't mention is, you know, your dad. Right. Yeah. You, you you come from a family that has um, deep roots in conservation.
2: Very. Um. Yeah. My dad was a, a conservation officer. Um, then became an assistant regional supervisor for Game Fish and Parks here in South Dakota. And I hate to admit it, saying I'd never been to Terry Redland Art Center, but I grew up here in Watertown. Um, drove by it, you know, the last 22 years I've driven by it. Dude! Frequently. I know. Dude! It's always one of those things where I'll, i got to go there next time. Next Erica. time.
3: I don't think you can say anything. You haven't been here either. <laughs> yeah. today, but I didn't
2: so. grow up didn't <laughs> here. Didn't grow up here. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and I'd run into Terry around town, uh, met the guy several times. Super nice guy. Um, just very down-to-earth. and um, But, yeah, it, it grew up here. So, you know, with my dad being working for Game Fish and Parks, you know, my early memories were at the age of 8, I got to go out and band geese and ducks with the banding crews. Yeah. In fact, to the point where you know, I could walk in and out of that, that capture pen without ducking. Hmm. So even if my dad wasn't going out that day, the banding crew would stop and pick me up. <laughs> just because they didn't have to duck in and out of the cage. And I could jump in there and, you know, wrestling geese, you know, full-size can of geese, and just tossing them out as an 8-year-old. It was what a way to grow up
0: i can still go through that pen without ducking (laughs) i didn't say it i know i thought everybody was thinking it it, so (laughs) i just made the joke anyways yeah but no so yeah i was i've been
2: around this field for most my life um and it's just been it's been fun and you have
0: um you you and i have hunted a number of times together you've um, been part of rooster road trip um four or five times You came uh, to the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, bet to my stomping grounds. Yep. And, you know, one story that I always like to tell is uh, I think you have a different breed of dog now, right? Yep. You, when we hunted early, you, you had Golden, a yep. Golden Retriever. And you had a darned English setter, darned by – it was a good dog, but you mm. named it in an unfortunate <laughs> name. So yep. I, I, if I can set the scene, we're out in some very tall grass in South Central, South Dakota – and uh, Matt's like, Bob, Bob. I'm like, what? No, oh, I'm calling my dog. My Bob, dog's name
2: Bob. Bob didn't behave the best. Yeah. <laughs> he liked to run.
0: Yeah. English, English setter named Bob hunting next to you and my name being Bob. Yep. That I've created for many confusing and entertaining moments. Yeah. But I
2: remember one time I was yelling at him and there's some colorful words mixed in with it. And all of a sudden, looking here is Bob St. Pierre standing next to me. I am like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Well, you are calling my name." <laughs> you are swearing, like, no, dude! <laughs> I am talking to my dog. <laughs> and you
0: have English cockers now. I have an English it? cocker an an English now.
2: English Yep, yep. Um, always a golden retriever guy at heart, um, but you know, I've made a few swore the, the cocker. I came to him because you know, I do a lot of travel with my job now. So having that smaller dog that still is a very driven hunter, yeah, was very appealing to me. Um, love it, scout. He's about four now. T- try to time him right so that my, my oldest will be full on 12 hunting when he hits his peak. And it's, it's coming out where he's turning into a really good dog.
0: Cool. So Matt works with the state agencies, the USDA, um, game fishing parks in the state. Yeah. Erica Yost yes. is um, our point person, quarterback for working with our chapters in the state and all all of the members. And um, you you've been working for the organization, as you said, five years as a Farm Bill biologist in Iowa. Give us your your kind of backstory for the listeners.
3: Absolutely. So, grew up in the Lusk Hills of western Iowa, born and raised in Iowa just a new transplant here to South Dakota, and so just grew up hunting, uh, loving to get out and enjoy habitat in our wild places, and uh, while I was in college, I actually met one of our farm bill biologists there in Nebraska and got to kind of learn about what Pheasants Forever was about and our mission and just um, the passion I had for habitat and hunting. I mean, I was like, I, I started to volunteer for the organization at that point. But I was like, Which I biologist need biologist? It was you? Cassidy Gerties. Okay. She's no longer with us. She's moved up to, and she works for Game and Game Parks now in Nebraska. Okay. But um, I came to volunteer for us at that point about seven years ago. And I said, I, I mean, I'd love to work for this organization someday. And so it was always just kind of a dream. I really never thought it would actually happen. But, you know, here I sit today. I was... Lucky enough out of college to get a farm bill biologist job in southeast Iowa. And so I worked there for five years working with landowners just like Morlock did. One of the most rewarding jobs, like he said, just mm-hmm. helping landowners meet their goals for their property and putting a lot of habitat on the ground doing it. So uh, really, really excited to be here in South Dakota and get to work with our volunteers or, who are just as passionate about yeah. our organization and our mission and some really incredible people.
0: So I grew up as a bird hunter. Um,
3: actually I did, I grew up as a deer hunter for quite some time. It was really right before I started, I got into pheasant hunting just a little bit and got a dog right after I started. And once I got out there on the prairie and watched the sunrise and watched my dog point, I mean, it sealed the deal. And <laughs> that's absolutely what I spend all yeah. season doing now. But yeah.
0: And, and you're very active on social media, right? And if folks want to follow you, check out some wonderful photography. Um, you're on Instagram at...
3: Uh, Erica K Yost.
0: Erica K Yost. Y O S T. Yep. And Twitter at.
3: Same, actually. And, okay. Erica. Make it K. easy. Follow me across the and, board. And, and, you, and
0: you have a unique perspective on um, what is, like, how hunters and fishermen, anglers, outdoors people, things that they should post on social media to portray themselves in the best light.
3: Right. So I just I just love to tell my entire story, tell the whole story, and mm-hmm. so that's. All the things that i love about hunting we often kind of post the end product which is the harvest and we love those shots and they make us proud and we the can The quintessential
0: share those. tailgate shot, yes right?
3: and we can share those with our buddies and we can share stories and that's fun but uh, for me it's talking about you know watching the sunrise or just how my heart starts to beat when my dog points it's just all those experiences that you have in the field that you love that you just don't do a good job of sharing. Right. So I love to just try try to share the whole story and even the meals that we get to enjoy afterward with our harvest. So. Yeah,
0: that's a great message because the uh, you know, well, a it's really hard to take a tasteful tailgate shot, right? Right. right, like right. that bird has been in your game vest for 3 <laughs> hours. It's right. got rigor mortis in it. You know, it was once you know Beautiful thing. Right. It's not so beautiful anymore. Like, but but that scene behind the tailgate, right? That sun setting, the dog, you know, the meal at the end of the day, like that can make such a more powerful social media post than, hey, look at these sons of guns I got just a (laughs) half half hour before sunset today. Right. Right.
2: Which is fitting because you know when you talk to another hunter or you talk to a non-hunter even about hunting. You're always talking about those experiences on the front end and, and eating and eating the mm-hmm. end of it. You rarely talk about the harvest. Mm-hmm. But then the pictures we take are the grip and grins of well, what I got.
0: It's a little bit of that, um, well, testosterone, masculine, yeah. like, I look at me. I got my limit, right? right? A little yeah. bit. It, yeah. And it turns people off, yeah. right? The, for the folks that... We want to encourage to be pro-conservation, pro-hunter voters that are looking at those social media feeds. Like, take the photo of the dog, the meal, right, the friendships, the family. There's so much more that goes into it than, you know, the the end-of-the-day tailgate, right? right?
3: Yeah, and so I'm not perfect. This was definitely a lesson that I learned. I mean, I used to be the same way as most people out there was posting those same photos and One day I just had a friend say to me, you know, I don't think I could ever hunt, Erica. It looks like you have a lot of fun, but I don't think I could ever do it. And so I just asked her why. And she said, I don't think I could ever kill anything. And I said, I just thought to myself, that is not all that hunting is to me. And so we just really need to be able to tell our whole story and show people that it's other other things than just killing.
0: Well, that's a great message. Um, I, I think you do a wonderful job on, of it. And again, folks that want to f- uh, follow Erica K. Yost on Instagram, Twitter, um, it, it, she is a Britney owner, so you know, know that going <laughs> in. And I know there's a lot of Britney. Fo- I'm just teasing. I grew up with Britneys. I, 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 I love uh I love your post. So thanks <laughs> Thank for you. mentioning that. Um, all right. So the meat and the potatoes hundredth. Pheasant hunting season for the state of South Dakota. Game Fish and Parks just released their information a little bit ago, um, and they did their August roadside counts. And see if I got my numbers correct. 110 routes, 30 miles per route.
2: And the results of that are... Up forty seven percent is the official numbers that came out. Doo, 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 doo. <laughs> we had a win
0: forty seven percent
2: up year right. on year. Now,
0: so let's put that in perspective for a moment. Right, that's after pretty down year a right. year ago. Right. Yep. So last year, and I, I, I think it was in the magnitude of sixty seven percent down a year ago.
2: Something. Oh. Yeah, 64, 67, somewhere in there.
0: So yeah. it fell pretty far down, and a lot of that had to do with a really dry, drought ridden year that yep. hurt um, habitat, right? Because yep. things didn't grow, bugs didn't get produced, and, you know, birds didn't reproduce. Right. So we had a tough year a year ago. So things started to set up well last winter.
2: Last, yeah, Well, going into the fall, even, it was, you could see kind of that weather pattern switch. We started getting more moisture again. Um, we actually had a lot of fall bugs, um, so I I was, I was fall bugs. So like grasshoppers, yeah, grasshoppers, that kind of stuff. We saw more of. Um, you know, there wasn't. I don't know why, but we just seemed to have a higher flush of them. Um, so the indicators were good that we're we're switching patterns again. Um, that it was going to be a good spring, um, and it turned out to be true.
0: And fall bugs are important because.
2: It's just more of an observation. Oh, I mean, me. but it's but it's also,
0: the young birds are still eating bugs, right? I mean, right. you they're can open up opening day and the juveniles right. have a lot of grasshoppers in their crops, right? They do. Right? Mm-hmm. They
2: do. It, it's not as essential to their diet at that point. Okay. You know, they're not trying to get, you know, thermal regulation and put weight on. Um, but they're still going to harvest them if they're there. Um, they're starting at that point to switch to more of a grain hmm. diet, but um, they're still using them. And it's, it's always good to fatten them up. I mean, there's high protein there.
0: That's so. That was a good question. That okay. So I got two biologists here. <laughs> why? Why do they change from insect to grain? Now the, the obvious answer is, well, insects die when the frost hits, right? But right. It, and then they change to grain. Will adults eat insects through the spring and summer months? Um, uh, yeah, they will.
2: Yeah, they're you know they're optim they're opportunistic. I mean, they're gonna. If it's in front of them, they're gonna eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to try to put more thought into it, I think, than there is. Mm. I mean, if it's in front of them, they can get it and be in their mouth. They're gonna do. Oh,
0: it. so they're <laughs> like me. Yeah. I I once I, I talked to a guy about uh, brook trout and he said they're opportunivores. Right. Right. <laughs> like, okay, that's that. You know, herbivore, carnivore, opportunivore. They'll eat whatever you put in front of them. Right. I yeah. like that. Yeah. They're just, pheasants are kind of like
2: that. They're like that. Yeah. There's just a study wrapped up down at South Dakota State on this kind of stuff. Um, and they kind of found that if that bug lived in that height zone that they could get to, they mm-hmm. were going eat it. They weren't, you know, passing up anything. It was, if it was available to them, they were eating it. Hmm. Um, and it was just, you know, they want to get as much in them as fast as they can. So they can get that bigger body size so that they can survive. All right. So I took us off a chan-
0: tangent there. and you're ta- All right. So we had a uh, fall was pretty good. Yeah. And we went into winter and yeah. last winter was relatively really mild, mild.
2: Really mild. Yeah. Right. For us, it's really mild. Um and so we came out of that with a great survivability rate on our hens. Um,
0: survivability rate. So coming into nesting season, a lot of hens on the landscape. Right. Good thing for reproduction.
2: Very good for reproduction. Um, we lucked out with our pheasants. We had a, April, a big blizzard in April. Mm. You know, Where I live just south of here, we had, I think, 18 inches of snow mm-hmm. in one 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 event. Um, but it melted quick. That was the other good thing. It was all our snow that we got this year mm-hmm. was late in the year. So it wasn't like we got it in October and they had to suffer through the whole winter. Um, it was late in the year, so you'd get a snow event and then warm up. So the field would open back up.
0: So it, so that snowstorm hit right in front of tax day. So that yep. was April 5th, 14th-ish. I think it was so 11th, on the April 11th. 11th, 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 11th. Okay. Yep. So typically that's when pheasants start initiating their nests, right. right? And we get 18 inches of snow. While it melted quick, I, I have to believe it pushed back the start of the nesting season. Is yep. that accurate assumption?
2: It did. It did. But lucky for pheasants, you know, they were just starting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we saw a significant drop this year, I think, at our candidate goose hmm. um, numbers because they were already on the nest and they were they were incubating at that point. Right. I saw a lot of pictures. I tried to grab one and it didn't turn it out. For me, right by my house where there was this hen sitting on a muskrat hut. Hen goose. Um, and her head was popped up to the snow bay. Wow. And she was sitting on that nest, and she was not going to leave that nest. So those eggs aren't going to
0: get incubated.
2: More likely not. Right. This one, she was she was a tough old girl. If we could right. clone her, we would be good because she did pull <laughs> off a nest. Oh, um, really? Um, wow. Yeah, she pulled one off. I watched her just to see what would happen. But it sounds like most of them, you know, especially those younger mm-hmm. hens that weren't, you know, as dedicated to it, they lost those nests.
0: So when I say pheasants were starting to initiate their nests around that time they were basically creating nests they weren't yep. necessarily laying eggs they weren't laying it. Yep. Right. okay yep. so so it maybe bounced back the initiation of the nest, but wouldn't have had a major impact on nesting season right. all right so then we get to early may right yep. and that's when they do start laying eggs in south dakota right right and then what happens
2: Yep. and then you know our weather patterns were a little wetter you know they seemed really wet for us because we had such a bad drought last year. Um, but the temperatures were perfect. They were in the 60s, um, not too warm. You know, that's part of what happened last year was it got – we had right when we were hatching, we had three weeks of 90-degree-plus weather, and it just basically cooked those chicks. Um, this year, the temperatures were perfect for us. We had good moisture so that, you know, we knew the bugs were going to be produ- produced. It just – we couldn't have designed a better spring.
0: Okay. So, because – it. In, from Minnesota, we had really heavy rains in early June, right? Like, right around that June 10th, which is roughly the peak of the hatch, that didn't really hit South Dakota, at least not over a widespread
2: part of the state? Not a widespread part of the state. Our, our southeast part of our state, which is more of our, our lower pheasant production which area. Which would make
0: sense, yep. down towards southwest Minnesota, yep. that Marshall area. It
2: kind of clipped that clipped mm-hmm. that corner of our state, but it, the rest of the state didn't. They got just nice rain events. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, and it kind of it was funny because I live in Brookings, which is 15 miles from the state line, and about 40 minutes from Marshall. And Marshall would get three, four inches where we'd get maybe a half an inch, hmm. almost every time. So it, it, we just lucked out with that.
0: And maybe um, explain a little bit about, you know, from a hen pheasant's perspective, if they lose a nest, how, what insta- um, creates a second nesting?
2: So they need to have something. It doesn't even have to be the eggs have to get destroyed. She just really needs to get rattled with something. Hmm. You know, whether it's a predator or something comes in and really scares her, she'll just say, okay, it's not safe to go back to this spot. Okay, so if
0: they're in a ditch and uh, somebody, you know, a coyote flushes it. Or right. A hay
2: field. Yep, it would be, you know, that if that coyote or fox especially mm-hmm. gets really close to her and, mm-hmm. and really just really scares her. Um, she'll even abandon at that point. You know, okay. something we would always conscious of when we we're nest dragging, was to not spend a lot of time there. Right. While we're we're doing what we're doing with those nests, because if you spent too much time laying around, or if you came back really frequently, right. You know, more than once every couple of weeks, she would just abandon that site.
0: And if a raccoon comes in there or that coyote and they eat the eggs, yep. then, she'll then it split. starts over.
2: Again. Yep. She'll start over again too.
0: But if that hen pulls off a clutch, in other words, those eggs hatch. That's it as far as nesting goes. Yeah.
2: She won't
3: nest again. Yeah.
2: Even if just one egg peeps Mm -hmm. and just starts to crack even, Mm -hmm. she's done for the year. She's like, I'm off. I'm going to go try to make my winter.
0: So in years where we have that really heavy spring rain um, after hatch and the birds, those chicks, die of exposure, right, because it's cold, it's wet, and their chicks that's really a bad case scenario because that hen isn't going to start over again. Right. Now, if they have that nest in it, like a guller, gully washer hits the nest, washes those eggs out, they'll start over again. Right. So timing of those rains are really critical to what happens in a second nesting perspective, right? right?
2: Absolutely. Yep. yep, and even, you know, this year what we're, you know, we talked about 47% up, but, you know, when I'm talking to a lot of farmers around the area, they're seeing a whole lot of chicks that were too young to be counted in that even oh really so that 47 that percent's a conservative number um which is good um we a few years ago we had the opposite happen to us where we did our brood counts and they all died so we didn't have the production increase we thought we did when hmm. this year it's the opposite but that was you know they tried three times or four times you know, i think i've heard of up to four or five times where that hen will try again
0: hmm really yeah and now i've heard that certain conditions make um it easier to count birds on roadsides right Mm -hmm. like what what constitutes like a good year for being able to see you know broods
3: yeah so in my area I actually thought it was kind of a tough year to do the counts because it was pretty dry and there wasn't a lot of dew in the morning and that's really what you want is you want the grass to be dewy so that the hens are bringing the birds out on the road to dry off okay Um, a sunny morning helps too so
0: So due in the morning, birds, you know, adults and chicks come out puffing the feathers, drying Mm -hmm. off, right? And that's when these roadside counts are occurring, early morning, and that's when they get an index. Uh, And they've been every state, not every state, but most of the states in the heart of the pheasant range have been doing these um, roadside counts in August. So that mm-hmm. it's not scientifically exact, but it gives you a sort of a baseline comparative over year over year. Yep.
2: Yeah, yeah. In South Dakota, the data goes back to the '40s, mm-hmm. where they've ran those same routes, same times, and they just do it really relig- religiously. Mm-hmm. And then they can kind of get an idea of over the years how the harvest went, all that kind of stuff. That's how they came up with a, kind of an index of that number. Mm-hmm. But it's more you're looking for those trends. You know, where are you at from a 10-year average on what you saw? because we've done it the same way same time every year since the 40s. So one thing that's changed
0: a lot um over the since the 40s, right? The weather always changes and that's right. a variable that's out of our hands. Um the big thing that's within our human hands to control and constantly is changing even here in the pheasant capital of South Dakota is habitat. Right. Um if I think back to Oh, 0708 uh, it was the 60 year high bird numbers in this state right That's a statement, right I think they estimated 13 million bird pheasant population across the state of South Dakota. Just to give you a perspective, there's 750,000 people right. in the state of South Dakota. There are 13 million pheasants. It's crowded out in there. The, well, that's what it was at the 60-year high, right? But right. It, things have fallen off, even in South Dakota, pretty dramatically. What's happened?
2: Yeah, it's a combination of factors. Um, habitat's the big driver we can control. Um, you know, we The CRP sign-ups, you know, we weren't getting the acre allocations we wanted. Or needed I should say you know so we lost a lot of CRP acres um, high commodity prices or prices landlords had to make that their farmers had to make that decision of you know going back into real crop production because I could make more money um, so there's a lot of that going on um, so a lot of stuff that was in either CRP or you know range land got put back into real crop production um, there's just a lot of things that came together at that time we also had some drier years um, some tough years for mm-hmm. a production standpoint because our peak you know our peak habitat was about 0607. Mm-hmm. We yeah. didn't see the real drop till about 2010. Um, we hung on for a while, and then we had some bad weather years, and that knocked us down to down to where we kind of bottomed out. And now we're building back from there. Right. Yeah. I, I think in that 07
0: range, there was 1.5 million acres of CRP yep. in the state of South Dakota, and if memory serves, it's it's around 900,000 today. It's under a million.
2: It's, it, it's, yeah, I just saw the latest figures about a week ago, and we're, we're close to that million mark, Okay. okay. Um, but we're not, we're not over it. If you, if you factor in the new grassland CRP, then we t- trickle over it. Okay. Um, but that's, you know, that's grassland CRP is not apples and oranges to what we think of for CRP. Um, it's still um, a lot of, it, it's more rangeland that's, it's still grazed fairly heavily.
0: Um, and our
2: goal at, at Pheasants Forever is to get South
0: Dakota back up to that 1.5 million acre CRP program, because I mean, it's, it's, it's night and day difference, right? When you have 1.5 million acres of CRP on the landscape in South Dakota, you have really healthy, not only pheasant numbers, but South Dakota is the, uh, is it number two pollinator producing honeybee producing state in the country? I believe North Dakota is number one, South Dakota is number two in terms of, honeybees that are exported to Maine to pollinate blueberries, to California to pollinate almonds. It's right. so, like, you know, the pheasant is an indicator species for the health of the landscape, right? right? And when you think about CRP is the, the critical variable for those pheasant numbers, but also for one in three bites of food we eat, right, right. through pollination, like there's some things going on here that CRP can solve.
2: Right, it, it it factors into a lot of stuff. I mean, not just from our side. We we like to look at it from our angle, but you know, it, it helps the agriculture industry too. From a, the pollination end of their crops, but also that's what helps their prices, you know, stay kind of stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of what we saw going on was when commodity prices were high. It made sense to farm some of those acres again. Right, and that kind of is one of the factors that drove that price down to where it is now. Um, and we could, you know, if, if I don't want to go down the political road, but if, if political environments were better than what it is now, and it's, it's dollars and cents right now, um, if we could provide the CRP options that we used to, um, we'd be at $1.5 million again because the landowners are interested in going into the program. They want to go in the program. It's just not av- available to them right now.
0: Well, you maybe don't want to go about down the political <laughs> road, but I'll just mention Well, go down it, there. well Just for a, a little bit, for a moment, you know, the last farm bill brought CRP down to 24 million acre cap, and that's a problem. And it's a problem where South Dakota is at the centerpiece of that problem because during the last CRP general sign up, so folks that wanted to offer their property, you know, farmers, ranchers that wanted to say, take this environmentally sensitive acre and enroll it in habitat, right? Put it to work for wildlife, for water, for soil in the state of South Dakota, I believe there was 107 offers, right? Your memory is really good. <laughs> 107 <laughs> offers. Matt Morlock, tell me how many landowners got accepted into the CRP program during the last CRP general sign-up.
2: Two. And more importantly, there was, there was two, yeah, two. And what was the total
0: number of acres?
2: One hundred and one. One hundred
0: and one uh, acres in this entire state of South right. Dakota. And there was what 40, is wrong with that?
2: Out of that hundred and one that were offered, there was almost fifty thousand acres there. It wasn't a demand. The farmers wanted into the program.
0: Exactly the point. Farmers, ranchers, the agriculture community wanted in to CRP. Pheasants forever. In the pheasant capital of the country, wanted more CRP. Yep. Two landowners. Two. Two.
2: Two. And they were in the same area, so it wasn't even spread out. Uh,
0: and, uh, you know, that's that's where there's a problem. Yep. Right? When, when you have – and there's great examples of – the agriculture community and in the conservation community working hand in hand no better examples than in the state of South Dakota we're going to talk about a few of those but here is a perfect example in the CRP general sign up where we have landowner demand and we only can get two accepted right. so that that is the you know absolute perfect example of the problem with a past farm bill you do have a champion here in senator thune Yep. Who has been, um, you know, going to Washington D.C. and saying we need more CRP acres. Um, he, he fought, has been fighting hard in the current farm bill debate. So, you know, the, you have a wonderful champion in the senator. Right. Uh, you have a governor that's supportive, uh, in Governor Dugard, that's looking for more acres. You have two candidates running for governor of the state of South Dakota that have pheasant-oriented plans. Right. It's a big issue in the state of South Dakota. It's huge.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's our tradition. It's something that's a lifeblood of Main Street. It's it's tradition. It's lifeblood. It's economic. It's
0: cultural. It is a political debate in the state of South Dakota. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It should be. It, habitat, conservation, the pheasant as an indicator of all things in the state of South Dakota, it should be a part of the conversation for governor here. It should be a part of – conservation should be a part of the discussion for every political um, candidacy from the president on down. We're talking about water quality. We're talking about soil resources. We're talking about a way of life that we care about. So, all right, I'm off my soapbox. (laughs) Uh, So let's go to uh, um, – Let's talk about some some fun things that are happening in the state of South Dakota. The number one thing that jumps to my mind is we had National Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic in Sioux Falls just a few months ago. That was an absolute barnstorming success. And one of the major things that happened there was a partnership with South Dakota Corn Growers Association. Um, Matt, you were a major part of that. Tell us a, a little bit about what that partnership looks like and what it's focused on
2: right yeah so you know this has been a lot of years in the making um, you know we've been talking with South Dakota corn growers for about four years really heavily about you know we're going towards a common issue common thought you know we have a common goal um, and that is a strong rural South Dakota um, if we have a strong rural South Dakota you know everything else that we get care about our pheasants and our farmers and stuff are taken care of strong um, rural South Dakota agriculture And wildlife wildlife. play into that. And that's the two biggest industries in our state. I mean, just pheasants alone bring in around $240 million a year to South Dakota. That's just pheasants.
0: And if you don't believe that, folks, look at the quarter, right? A few years ago, uh, every state got their own quarter and got to put, you know, emblem of what represents that state. South Dakotans voted, and there is a rooster flying over Mount Rushmore in the state of South Dakota. Right, I it don't know that. Than that. I don't think there's ever actually been a literal rooster that's flown over Mount Rushmore. Maybe <laughs> not, not, a, heard, not a wild yeah. one. But I have seen him. But that is a statement of how important this bird is right. to this culture. I'm sorry to interrupt
2: you. No, you're good. You're, you're hitting all my spots that I want to go. with. So oh, it's perfect. <laughs> it, it's perfect. I like that. Um, but yeah, so it's you know, and so we've been talking for several years now about. Where we can partner up our powers, because you know, South Dakota corn growers is, is probably the biggest agricultural commodity group in our state. Definitely okay. the most influential. Um, you know, we've worked with them on a lot of issues behind the scenes, um, but never publicly. Um, but then, you know, we started digging into. We have a th- saline soils.
0: Saline soils. Yep. And, okay.
2: And the soil guys are gonna get mad at me because it's actually saline and sodic. It's two different issues, saline but they're and together. So- okay. Um, when you come out to South Dakota, especially as you get in the James River Valley. You'll go driving by ag- agricultural fields that have these white spots that just there's no nothing there. I mean, they're just devoid of vegetation, whether it's a row crop or anything else. Um, and it's weird because they've been there forever, but in the last five years, all of a sudden it's like we got a problem. Hm. You know. We so you're that. driving
0: down the highway, you look out on the side, and they're typically aren't they like uh, little depressional areas yep. that used to be seasonal wetlands, right? Right. right. And it looks like somebody dumped a bottle of, or a big canister of Morton System Saver salt on right, it, right? Right, exactly. That's, that's exactly
2: <laughs> right. It's a big white spot on the ground. And, you know, the farmers are just, you know, they're, they're running their planter's room every year. They're putting the inputs into that land knowing that they're... So they're, they're planting seed. They're running tractors filled with gas. Yep. They're
0: dumping pesticides, herbs. Nothing's growing.
2: Nothing's growing on there. So... You know, a couple of years ago, the light bulb kind of came on to everybody. Says, this is a bigger issue than we probably – we've been looking at it and kind of not ignoring it, but and we need to do something with this thing. And and SDSU came up with a new figure just a couple of weeks ago. There's 5 million acres in our state that are impacted with a potential of up to 10 million acres of of hmm. cropland, which this is just real cropland, that is affected by salts. Um, so it's reduced yield, so those farmers aren't making any money off it. You know, so us in Corgo so
0: five to ten million acres.
2: Yep. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we got together and we you know, we said let's let's team up on this issue. And what it, like you're right, it, it there's it's a water issue is what it actually is. Um, through shallow rooted plants, uh, lack of diversity and crop rotations, um, tillage and stuff, there's a hard clay pan will form, you know, five to ten inches below that surface. And that the water can come kind of through the rain, would we'll come on top of it and sit there, and it can't go back down like it naturally would. Hmm. Well, in those areas, there's calcium bicarbonate is the chemical of it um, that's just naturally in our soils. And that gets pulled up with it. It's water-soluble, so it gets pulled up to the surface with that water. And As that water evaporates off because it can't go back down, that salt just sits on the top. Hmm. Um, lucky for us, the research over the years has shown the best thing that you can do with it is, is perennial vegetation. Um, and, we've, and, it, and it mirrors the plants that grow in that area, um, just mirror that dense nesting cover that we always used to talk about. Big Alf- blue stem. Um, alfalfa, sweet clover, um, wheat grasses. Okay. Um, all those cool season growing grasses that the, the hens are selecting for to make their nests in, um, they'll tolerate the salt. So we came together and you, we've launched this program now where we're signing up landowners where they can go into a five-year contract. Um, we'll give them the seed to put on these acres and give them $150 an acre to, you know, just to get that established and get it going. Um, They can do some haying and grazing on it if they want to um, because we're not paying them a lot of money. Um, And that's just to start that salt process, you know, get those calcium bicarbonates to run back in the soil columns um, so that it's no longer just this wasteland sitting out there. Hmm. Turns into a real win-win for the producers because they're not having that economic sink out there. And we get the wildlife habitat with it.
0: And how how long is the... How long does the perennial vegetation—easy for me to say—need <laughs> to uh, need to be on the landscape before that soil is farmable again? Yep.
2: So there, it all depends on how early you get into it. Um, you can see changes as early as three to four years. Um, some of those things, it's going to take a long time. Um, but we're hoping, you know, part of our our program too is not just—we're going to do this for five years and then go back to farming it. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to talk to these producers because that issues is always going to come back up. Right. If, if we don't change the cycle, that issue is going to pop back up again. So there's an educational component to this that we're doing less than corn growers and NRCS, USDA NRCS. are doing a bunch of workshops and tours with producers um, to talk about the bigger issues, um, alternative uses for it. Um, can you enroll it in, say, a farmable
0: wetlands practice within CRP?
2: You can. Okay. Um, or there's even a saline soils practice Hmm. under crp but with that program there's some encumbrances that aren't necessarily for everybody okay um you know these producers that we're working with want to still be able to have some livestock benefits off it um so we'll allow them to come in after nesting season and hay it once Hmm. or if they want to put cattle in it they can put cattle in it in the wintertime to aftermath graze on their crop residue um and that cycling the nutrients good um and and corn
0: grow i'm sorry go ahead no go ahead so corn growers came in and said Pheasants Forever, you can help us with these acres.
2: Yep. You know, this is something where we both have a common interest in this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes sense for us to do it. Um, so it's been a phenomenal partnership um, It's for both of us. It, it's, it's, it's helping us talk to producers more, mm-hmm. um, engage those producers more. It's helping them engage the conservation community more. Um, there, you know, it's just been a win-win for us both. Hmm.
3: If you just think about, you know, five to 10 million acres across the state of South Dakota, that's, you can create an incredible patchwork of habitat out there and improve a lot of producers, bottom line. So definitely a great opportunity. And
0: how much habitat do you need in a patch to like, you know, for pheasants to find some success? I mean, what I'm getting at is they don't need massive numbers of acres. I mean, it's helpful. Right? It but, is. But, but uh, patchworks, mosaics, right, are important
2: for pheasants.
3: Right. So, you know, 20, 40-acre blocks are important, but having the con- contiguous pieces that connect all those are really important as well. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah, and it's not even just, you know, I just, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but this fall there's been a tremendous monarch migration going on. Um, the biggest one I've seen in a lot of years. Yeah. Um, we have some pictures um, from some of our farm biologists that have done our pilot, ish, our pilot acres, mm-hmm. um, and they're just loaded with monarch butterflies. They're in there these sites that the farmer went in and hayed August 1st, but there's, enough, there's alfalfa mix so that sprouted back up and started blooming again, and it's just carpeted with monarchs. Hmm. Those monarchs on their migration south are stopped in these, these fields that are full of bloom, and it's just crazy to watch. So it's not just pheasants that we're getting the benefit off of. Right, selfishly, that's what I look at. Um, I want to go hunt pheasants. So
0: yeah, we we all like monarchs yeah. too. They don't taste as good. They're not, uh, they're, hard they're, to very hit. B- they're really hard to hit. They're yeah. very beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you mentioned about uh, the connections, right? The the connections for habitat and. I instantly think of buffers and things like CREP, right? Yep. And where I'm going is the James River CREP, which is a wonderful program that exists here because it's a not only a habitat program, it also creates public hunting access. So tell us a little bit about what's unique about the James River CREP, C-R-E-P, in the state of South Dakota.
2: Yep. So that was a partnership where... Game Game Fish and Parks, South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, was providing an added-on payment to CRP, an Mm -hmm. existing USDA program. Where it's unique is it's the first one of its kind where the add-on. Normally with with CREP, you have to do something different. In most states, they do easements or longer-term CRP contracts with them. Where here, we open it up to public access. If you went into CREP, you got an additional payment that was provided by the state, and then your land was opened up for public hunting. Um, And it was phenomenal success. Yeah. Um, In fact... You know, the timing couldn't have been better slash worse for it because the price of CRP, the price of doing it, was going up with everything else. So we ran out of money before we could reach our full hundred thousand acres that we wanted to do with the program. Right. We did about eighty nine thousand acres. Um, I think at the peak it was about eighty nine thousand acres in it, and we're actually to the point now where some of those are going to start expiring. The good news is is we're going to be able to re enroll those acres. I'm still be able to keep it going. Um, but it's been a very popular program and. Unique in that aspect that it was providing public access for the, for the public, obviously. It, it,
0: so if you're a non-resident hunter coming to South Dakota, the signs you look for, and it basically start up uh, Brown County, Aberdeen yep. area, right, and, and follow the James River south. Yep. Um, there are, I believe, white signs, and they say C-R-E-P, crap. Um, and they're privately owned acres that, because those landowners have enrolled in this Conservation Reserve Program component, they've been opened up to public hunting, and as you mentioned, they're some of the best public hunting opportunities in this state.
2: Right, yeah, that's you. When you go up on a crepland, you know, because it's part of the CRP program, also, you know, it's going to be high quality. Mm-hmm. Um, you, it's, you're not going to be, you know, a lot of some of these walking areas are set up for waterfall hunting. More so, so they you know they're, they're agricultural fields that geese or ducks are flying into for waterfall hunters. Um, they're not necessarily set up for pheasant hunting. Um, with these CREP acres, it's it's tall grass. It, it's set up for, you know it's going to be good pheasant hunting acres.
0: That is one of the neat things about um, coming to South Dakota from as a non-resident. You have CREP. Um, you have the walk-in, traditional walk-in programs. You have waterfall production programs because we're in the prairie pothole region, right? So yep. duck stamp dollars come to South Dakota and create WPAs, which are open to public hunting, and there extremely productive pheasant hunting spots and you have gpas game production areas um, which would be equivalent to wmas in other states state-owned public lands so you start adding the uh, there's one thing that's really you you find it in montana a bit but tribal lands right so there's there's also school lands you start thinking about all the public access programs in the state of south dakota and there are I, I think it's like 1.1 million plus acres of public hunting area, opportunity that's, here.
2: That's just walking area. Yeah, you're right. Walking is, is just 1.1. Which is really cool because that's private landowners opening oh, up right. for you and I to go out there and hunt. So that, those acres are really cool because that's that's private land. Um, I don't know the exact figure, but it's it's a couple million acres in our state that are that are open. I think 20% of the state is is public land. Yeah. Um,
0: Another program I wanted to talk about, which you know, um, Emmett Lenahan, right? He's the um, the it, it, this is his brainchild, and if you know Emmett, he's the most soft-spoken, down-to-earth guy in the world. He he lives in Brown County, Aberdeen. He's a farm bill biologist for Pheasants Forever. And he had this idea a couple years ago. and Matt, maybe you can tell us Emmett's idea and what that, what that spawned.
2: Yeah, so that's you know, the Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition. Um, it, Emmett was the brainchild of this thing. He worked closely with a partner of ours, Casey Wisemantle from the Aberdeen Chamber of Commerce. Um, and their idea was you know, kind of to mimic crap. But, you know, they saw the community of Aberdeen saw a 50% decrease in the dollars coming to the community through hunting um, just because the hunters weren't showing back up. You know, the numbers were down, um, and just access it was never a problem, but there wasn't as much of it. Um, and they kind of said, you know, we need to get involved in this. We as a community need that This is important enough to us that we need to be be a part of this system. And so they started going around to the area businesses in Aberdeen and, and getting donations from them, five, ten, fifteen thousand um, dollars 15000 They set up a pot of money so that they could go out to landowners and give them an additional payment to open up their land for public hunting. So this idea was unique in that it, this community of Aberdeen was investing in themselves and investing in us, and, and locking up hunting areas so that more, there's more public access in that area, so more people would come to the community and hunt. Um, and it's just been a phenomenal success. I think they're getting ready to move on to phase two. Um, they've they've they raised up about one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Um, in that first phase, and they've pretty much got it spent now. Um, I
0: I think $25 an acre, roughly, to open it up to public hunting. Yep, $25 an acre. Creating more habitat, more access, um, bringing in people into the community. Again, part of the culture of South Dakota, part of the economy of South Dakota. It was recognized, I'm trying to remember the year 2015, maybe, by Outdoor Life as the number one public lands innovation of the year. Um, and that has now been exported to Mitchell, South Dakota, right? and Chamberlain. We just lost, and Chamberlain.
2: We just, lost, we just lost. We signed up our first acres in Chamberlain about two weeks ago. Okay, um, and that one's really cool because it's 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 two counties, Lyman and Brule County, four communities that teamed up on that one. But Mitchell came in right after Aberdeen, um, and they raised one hundred fifty thousand dollars right away. Um, and they're doing they're doing the same thing down there. Um, the pervi- land's a little more expensive in that country, so they're doing $35 an acre. Mm-hmm. Um, they've signed up a couple hundred acres already under that program. That was launched about three months ago. Okay. Um, and then Chamberlain like, just came on in the last few weeks. Um, yeah, it, it's just it's it's so cool to me because it, it's communities mm-hmm. and businesses. Half the businesses I know in Aberdeen are not hunting type. It's like the people that deliver the gas to the gas stations, hmm. the gas stations themselves. Not directly... Hunting stores or hunting people right that realize that this is important and this is something that a tradition that we wanted to have go on in our communities, so they're coming in and investing in us
0: and i I think there's talk of a town in Iowa too, right, or community in Iowa that's um embracing this concept,
3: yeah down in Southwest Iowa, they're replicating this
0: it's very cool, yeah. Innovation in South Dakota, all
2: around the bird. It's just what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and it's and, and game Fish and parks also has jumped on board on this thing too. Um, they're providing you know, when they sign up for like an Aberdeen Pheasant Coalition contract. They're also going into the state walk in access program, um, and, and that's significant. In that they're also when the state comes in, they're taking the liability off that landowner. Hmm. If there was an accident on their land, and that landowner is not responsible for it the state will take over that responsibility because they're in that walk-in program you know so they've been a big supporter in this also and they're providing another 25 dollars an acre payment Hmm. Um, so where it's become pretty a pretty good deal for producers Um, if they're not if they don't have kids or themselves as hunters it's it's a pretty good contract for them to get into
0: any habitat programs that i've missed that we've talked about a lot of innovative things that are going on in the state anything bubbling that i've missed
2: Um, We do have another out west river. Um, We have a grazing program going on now where we partnered with National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where we're working with ranchers out west. Uh, More on that grouse and grassland bird side Mm -hmm. of things, but we're giving them the infrastructure to do better grazing systems. Um, And it's up to that landowner to put that land or put that infrastructure in. Um, And we're specifically targeting land that's coming out of the CRP program. Um, and trying to get that into more of a grazing system, so it doesn't not necessarily go back into row crops, hmm. or does not make sense to go into row crops? Let's let's keep the cattle going. Um, diversity is a big thing that makes a farm more sustainable. Sure. Um, so we're working with them out there, the ranchers out West River, on grazing systems also.
0: One thing that I think most people
2: underestimate about South Dakota is
0: it, like clearly the pheasant capital of the country. Like it's not even close to. Second place isn't even close. But what you may not recognize is Sharpies are here in big numbers, right? Hungarian Partridge are here. Uh, Prairie Chickens. And for our Quail Forever audiences, you might not know this, but there's Bob White. Quail in South Dakota as Keep well. It quiet. Uh, it, it, there ha, is. Put a pin dot on a man. Where where can you hunt quail in South Dakota?
2: So you would you would target that southern edge, those southern counties, um, Yankton, um, south of winter, South Dakota, that southern very t- edge of our state. Okay. The other little bird that you forget about that'll be good for you. I oh is rough grouse i, I i'm shocked because i thought you
0: were going to say sage grouse well which is two. another one yeah out west but where where on earth where yeah. in south dakota are there rough grouse in
2: the black hills um and they're native they're native to the black hills um i went out a few times and chased them um it's a lot of fun it's way different than hunting in the up where they they'll fly up and they sit in the tree you think of a western you know Blue grouse or something right. like that, where they'll fool hens, where they fly up and look at you. The rough grouse in South Dakota will do that for you, too. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: How far away am I from there? So you, <laughs> right now. Yeah, you're about six and a half hours <laughs> from there right now. But yeah, so you know, there's, there, nobody thinks about it.
2: And I, I asked the Game and Fish folks a, a few years ago People, how many people actually chase Right. It? and they said there's only probably a dozen people that yeah. actively will go out. Well, and make it 13. Them. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, real quickly back to quail. Are there enough quail to target quail in those southern counties of South Dakota or is it more of a incidental incidental species when you're out and chasing other things?
2: It, it's an incidental thing that you okay. just kind of bump into. I would, you know, yeah, I don't want somebody to think I'm going to go out to South Dakota and just and get get my quail. Um, you know, last year I think our whistling count was like 5. Um, but you talk to five birds, five, they heard, yeah, five. Oh, okay. So it, it's, there's a season for them. Right. Um, and, and there's more than that out there. Um, it's just, you know, they don't study them very hard right. or, or look for them very hard. I mean,
0: we're literally talking like three, four counties on the, um, edge of Nebraska down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but so they're here, but they're. Yep.
2: And you hear people getting a few yep. when they go down there, but it, they're typically out in the middle of range land on private land. Um, so they're not easy to get at, you know, I've bumped a few coveys hunting on the Missouri river corridor, mm-hmm. you know, there's that army corps of engineers land that's open to public you, it's spring turkey hunting is what I've bumped them, but I've bumped several coveys doing that. Um, so they're around, it's just, you know, I wouldn't want somebody to show up and think they're gonna go out and, right. and shoot five. Okay. Um, it's going to be, it's gonna be a challenge and when you get one, it's gonna be a trophy.
0: Okay. Um, You know, as we we transition here to, um, well, one question that I always get asked about South Dakota is, you know, in these bird counts, the roadside counts, the 47% up, right? Um, In the harvest, you know, 1.2 million bird harvest, I think it was last year, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, People always ask, well, you know, those numbers in South Dakota are inflated because it's all those lodges out there. That's not true. right Right? the lodge numbers the you know your favorite places to uh, entertain clients whatnot they're not part of any of these numbers we're talking about correct Right.
2: yeah they're excluded from that survey um if when there's some surveys that go out to hunters um if they indicate or if they had a preserve license they're they're not included in the survey um, they they tease all that stuff out. Right. So it, it's so there's
0: d- wonderful places to go. Right. Right. Entertain people. You know, cultural. Um, it, it, there's a wonderful place that uh, you, you can take family and friends and um, clients. Yeah. But in terms of wild birds habitat, those
2: numbers aren't even touching this. They're not in that. No, not at all. Um, and that's and I always talk with folks that, you know. There's also wild birds harvest on those places that aren't getting counted. Right. So those numbers are going back and forth each way. Um, great places to go. I used to guide at one for several years. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fun places to be at, but, yeah, we try to keep them separate.
0: Yeah, and I think the the point I'm trying to make is when you look at that harvest of 1.2 million birds or in a really good year, 1.5 or as high as 2 million so, or yep. very close to 2 million when I, we were talking about 07, 08, um, or the 47% increase in bird numbers or 13 million birds, all those numbers we're talking about are wild birds out there in the landscape. Yep. That's mind boggling, right? That's amazing. Yeah. So, it's a hundredth year anniversary and hundredth pheasant hunting season in the state of South Dakota. So, I'm going to ask you um, there's a lot of folks heading this direction in a few weeks, right? Yep. October 20th is the non resident opener. As South Dakota residents, you get to hunt the week prior, the week prior yeah. right? But the uh, so the opener, noon. Yep. october 20th you make us all wait for an extra long time in the morning
2: <laughs> strategic
0: um give us a couple tips uh, you know folks coming to south dakota are going to lace up the boots maybe hunt the james river crap or you know a gpa wpa um
2: what, what would you suggest uh, to help them find some birds I'm going to start with Erica on this one as the newcomer to the state.
3: Well, I'm going to pull the newbie card, and I'm going to listen to what you say. (laughs) This is my first season here in South Dakota. What a a year to be my first season, the 100th year of pheasant hunting here. But, yeah, Yeah. I'm looking for some tips from you.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) I'm not going to give away my secret spots. But um, it's pretty much across the state we had an increase. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's going to be pretty good everywhere you go. But I would, you know, myself, that James River Valley is always really strong. Um, you know, if you go out of the Huron country, you can go north and south from there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really good numbers in that area. Um, that's where my in-laws farm, and I spent a lot of time out there. And I've seen way more birds this year out north of north of Huron. What road was that on? Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to tell you that one. <laughs> But I'll tell you, you Uh, it's up in that Redfield country. That's as close as I'll get. Redfield,
0: which um, has trademarked the name, the pheasant capital. um, And that's
2: actually where the first release of wild pheasants happened was in Redfield. And
0: that was, oh boy, I did have that memorized, but it was 18... I don't have the. No. I don't have the year. Little, Maybe it was a little later, late. Nineteen oh something.
2: It was nineteen oh six, I believe. I do. I actually. You are going to probably prove me wrong now. No, I think I have it. It was in, somewhere in nineteen oh six ish, nineteen oh four, nineteen oh six. Oh, yeah. Nineteen oh eight
0: was the uh, introduction of pheasants in the state of South Dakota. The first season was nineteen nineteen. One thousand hunters bagged two hundred birds. Um, and then, uh, we, be, you know, from there it became yeah. the pheasant capital of the country.
2: Right. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's where I would, you know, that's a really good area. That's where you're going to get more of your traditional pheasant hunt. You know, where you think of, you know, walking grass fields, rocking the edges, walking cat- cattail sloughs. That's in that country. But if you're wanting to do something different, if you go out west in that kind of lemon country, you know, out western South Dakota, you're going to hunt draws and parts of big grasslands, plum thickets, um, it's a different style hunt, mm-hmm. um, it, so that, their numbers are really high there, too, um, so you can kind of, the nice thing about South Dakota is you can go to different parts of the state and hunt it differently, Yeah. Um, you get your more traditional walking corn rows and, and grass stands in the eastern part of the state and the central part of the state, as you go west, it turns into more of a, like you would picture a grouse hunt, but you're hunting pheasants, um, and hunting plum thickets and draws, woody draws and stuff like that, so. So here's my insider tip for South Dakota. You
0: come out here early season, and most years that I've been out here, um, the crops are still standing, right? And based on the rain that we've had in the last couple of days, um, you know, mid-September, my assumption is the fields are going to be pretty wet and the crops are going to be standing for a while, which might make for a little bit tougher opener when the crops are standing because those birds are just transitioning. Well, at a noon start, the birds are going to be in the, in the cornfields, right? Until the last hour of the day, you hunt that last hour of the day when they're coming back into the grass to roost. That's absolutely, you know, the golden hour is um, wonderful for the state of South Dakota. Uh, but I would say that you don't have to be here for opening day no. in South Dakota. You honestly don't have to be in South Dakota the first three weeks of the season. The time that I like to come to South Dakota is December and on. And, you know, the native South Dakotans look at me like, don't tell them our secrets, right? right? You're letting it out of the bag, Because... Everybody wants to be here for opening day, and it makes sense because the bird numbers are never going to be higher than they are on opening day. However, they're in the cornfields, right, until the crops get harvested. The beauty about coming here in December, all all the corn and beans are harvested right? So the birds are going to be in the grass and you do, as we mentioned earlier, we have those waterfall production areas here in South Dakota and folks in North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa know WPAs are wonderful places for pheasants. The challenge hunting them is um, it's wet until (laughs) it freezes, right? right? So if you come in December, you wear the right clothes. Like, I'm not going to tease you. It's not going to be 40 degrees. It's going to be cold, right? But that Is going to freeze all those wetlands, and you are going to be opened up to millions of acres, right, that nobody else has hunted all season long because they couldn't get there because it's been uh, too wet. All of a sudden, it's now froze, and you can hunt birds that haven't been pressured. And there's all sorts of different places that, like Sand Lake Wildlife Refuge, right? right? You can't even hunt the wildlife refuge until december 12th ish
2: something like that yeah right so frozen up and
0: in the season like these wildlife refuges have late started seasons you come out here in december do a little research on different unique places to hunt target some wpas and you can have cosmic late season pheasant hunting in South Dakota, you can have your selection of hotels. Uh, the the hunting pressure just absolutely falls off the cliff after Thanksgiving. So if you want to pick a time to come to South Dakota and really find some birds and every, have the
2: entire state open to you, come in December. Yeah, and what I would tell people is, you you want to experience that opener because there, there's nothing like the South Dakota pheasant. No there. doubt about it. So you need to make two trips. You know, come and do that. The, the pheasant opener is more of that camaraderie, mm-hmm. you know, hanging out with other pheasant hunters because it's, the hotels are jammed full of people pheasant hunting. The airports are full. The cafes are full of people pheasant hunting. So that tradition and that camaraderie aspect of it is really cool to experience. Everybody needs to experience that. But then come back late in the year and, and then see that other side of it. Some of my best pheasant hunts I've ever been on, have with, with snowshoes on. Mm-hmm. You know, th- snap the snowshoes on and you go busting through those cattail sloughs and through that snow. They've been the best hunts I've ever had. Um, so it, it's really worth coming out early in the year and experiencing that just that tradition. I mean, you're never going to find a bigger group of hunters together in one spot where having your gun in the back window of your truck is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And just talking about hunting and you, you know. Well, it
0: is. It's it's a really nice feeling to Roll into a town and have the welcome hunters banners on every restaurant yep. and gas stations. Like, yeah, you know, this is this is part of America that I want to be a part of, right? right. Where it's they get it, right? Yep. This is this is the outdoors. This is habitat. This is conservation. That I, I shouldn't be ashamed of loving. You know, to lace up my boots behind my bird dog and chase around some birds that I'm going to make into a wonderful meal. Right. In South Dakota, you feel. Absolutely at home doing that.
2: Right, and that's, you know, the, we were talking about Erica's Instagram and stuff. I mean, the opener's more about that stuff around the harvest of mm-hmm. the bird. Um, that's what you're experiencing there and just the families. I mean, we have, at my in-laws' place, the same um, father and sons and the mom comes out too. They've been coming out for over 25 years. They've formed a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're almost part of the family. Um, to experience those traditions and see that is, is just cosmic to use your words yeah it's just it, it's 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 really it's heartwarming um as an outdoorsman to, to be a part of that
0: it's funny that like, i i um have been fortunate in the last couple of years the minnesota vikings rookie camp they invite me to uh do um like firearm safety with the rookies because they do some trap shooting right and I, I talk with the coaches and the different vikings and their big trip on bye week is yeah. to come to south dakota and go pheasant hunting. Not yeah. just the rookies, but the coaches and, and some of the players. They travel out here where they can be anonymous bird hunters right. and lace up the boots and chase, chase some roosters. That's pretty cool. I know yeah. that there's other teams other than the Vikings. That, <laughs> there's packers out this way too, but PB. it's neat that that's part of a uh, culture that you don't hear about.
2: You'd be amazed some of the people you run into yeah. um, when you're out here. Tom so Brokaw. Tom Brokaw spends a lot of time here. He's a native South Dakota and Ken Herbert. You know, mm-hmm. one time when I was a kid, you know, I was out with my dad, when he was being when he was out patrolling, checked a group of hunters, and here's Ken Herbeck. Mm. Um, Tom Worrell. No folks yeah. Folks like that. Cardinals. You, Cardinals Ta- pitcher. You know, 87 World Series. Yeah. You don't bring that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with him. <them>. Um, <laughs> yeah. But you, you just, you Joe never Mauer. know who you Yeah.
0: Joe Maurer comes out every year. Yep.
2: You never know who you're going to run into out here. Um, yeah. It's it's a big thing. And, it, you know, there's the South Dakota Magazine, and they this new issue is dedicated to pheasant hunting. And it's. Kerry Grant used to come out yeah. here. Um, Stan Musial. Yeah. You know, it used to be a big trip for Hollywood. Is holiday.
0: it Roger Maris that's from here?
2: He's from Fargo. Fargo. He's from that other state. Oh, I'm sorry. He's from I that other you state. Up.
0: You got all kinds. Of, you got Ben Lieber. You got Chad uh, Greenway. Chad Greenway. All right. We've, we've devolved into NFL <laughs> talk. Um, wh- what have I missed? Anything that uh, you guys wanted to, to bring up before we, before we bid adieu?
2: just come out and visit but but stay you know come early well uh, yeah don't get my my late uh, season so the
0: last thing i'll say about the the late season you know there's a number of folks from pheasants forever employees that will ring up matt and erica in december and say you know i'm planning my new year's eve trip my annual trip out where should i Go. Yeah. As an indication for listeners, there's an awful lot of folks that are employees that kind of know the insider baseball. Um, it's, South Dakota is an absolutely great destination for late season hunting, whether it's yeah. December or I think your season goes to January tenthish yeah, somewhere it, in it's that neighborhood.
2: The, the first, I'm gonna get this wrong, it's the first Sunday of, the, of January that okay. it stops. So it, it varies throughout the years. Um, but yeah, it's a unexploited time of year. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll hunt early in the year, you know, part of work and, and and just meeting with people and out and about, but I don't really turn it on until Thanksgiving. Okay. You know, that's when I just really turn my hunting on and it hit December really hard. That's when I like to go out. But like you said, you got to be ready for it.
0: So last thing, and I just remember, so one of the unique things about South Dakota is so many of our chapters have their banquets in conjunction with the opener. So, Erica, you got a ton of chapters that are focused on entertaining people when they come out. Um, you want to throw out a couple banquets that are coming up uh, in conjunction with opening day?
3: Yeah, so we've had four banquets here already in the state. But, yeah, like you said, the majority of them are really around that resident and then full opener that we have here in October in the state. And so, um, I mean, almost every day of the week surrounded around those dates, you're going to find a banquet. Here in the state so
0: so opening day folks uh october the 20th so if you go to pheasantsforeverevents.org Look up the state of South Dakota. If you're coming out this way, please check out a Pheasants Forever banquet. Uh, a lot of them will be happening on that night of the 19th, the pheasant opener eve. And a lot of them will be happening on the 20th, the night after the... So that's a great place to come and share stories with hunters, get a little intel about who's finding birds, who's not. Pheasantsforeverevents.org and find some of the local banquets in the state and um, come out and support Habitat in the pheasant capital of the country. It is the 100th pheasant hunting season here. Please join us in South Dakota this year. It's 47% up, and that's on top of the best pheasant hunting in the country. Anyways, Matt Morlock, Erica Yost, my guest um, today, thank you so much for joining me in Watertown at the uh, Terry Redland Arts Center. It's been wonderful having you, and Believe it or not, I'm going to come back, and we're going to do this again. Awesome. awesome. Can't I, wait. I, I, you know, you, your hunting license is good at least twice a year, right? right. So right. I'm I'm uh, from here heading west, going to chase some uh, sharptails and some prairie chickens, which means I have a second half of the license to use, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll podcast You can buy two. You, can buy two. I, I, you know, you can, You don't have they, to stop. You, they'll I keep making license. them. Yeah. Folks, you've been listening to On the Wing, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's forecast, uh, podcast with uh, Matt Morlach, Erica Yost. I'm Bob St. Pierre. And once again, thank, thank you to Julie and the Redland Arts Center for hosting us today. Uh, we will see you down the road. Shoot straight. Be safe. Take a young person. Take anybody new out hunting. Enjoy the outdoors. Let's create some habitat, folks. Thank you.